James chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So a couple of weeks ago, we wrapped up our... Um, present series on the book of Exodus uh, last week and, and that was good wasn't it Exodus it was uh, I personally found it was really uh, really edifying and uh, informative uh, to get into those big issues of um, uh, uh, God's salvation of his calling of a people uh, the whole giving of the law the um, uh, what it means for God to be present with his people and how that was expressed in the tabernacle, uh, the need for a mediator between God and man and the, the need for atoning sacrifice and uh, all of that detail which really ultimately point, points us to Jesus and uh, his gospel. And uh, so that's been great. Last week we had a one-off sermon on same-sex marriage. I think it's good for us to have a change in gear now as we um, uh, 
flesh out the implications of what it's going to mean to live with Christ as our Saviour and our Lord. And with that in mind, over the next uh, eight weeks or so, we're going to be looking at a uh, small book in the New Testament, and it's the book of James, which was a part of which was read to us earlier on. So uh, you might want to open up uh, your Bibles at James chapter 1, which we'll get into in a moment or two. Uh, so you'll need that in front of you. But what I want to do as you're doing that, um, well, after you've done that, I just really want to lead us in a time of prayer to ask for God's blessing upon us as we look into his word this morning. So let's, let's bow in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for your word and for the, uh, uh, the, the rich uh, tapestry uh, of scripture that uh, takes us from uh, something like uh, the Exodus and brings us through to how we face trials and temptations in our daily walk with you now. Father, we pray uh, with gratitude for the book of James and we pray that as we look into it that uh, you would be um, helping us to uh, think through its meaning and actually think through uh, the impact and how it connects with our lives that we might be people who uh, live lives that are worthy of you. And so we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, they say that uh, live long enough and you will suffer. I think that's true, isn't it? That's uh, the reality of life, uh, this side of, uh, this side of uh, Eden and uh, this side of the second coming, the era in which we live. Uh, live long enough and you will experience suffering. A number of years ago, the Australian Bureau of Statistics asked Australians what they thought makes them happy in life. And when it all boiled down, it, it came down to three um, particular categories. Uh, people <clears throat> said that what they thought would make them happy in life are issues connected with, number one, relationships, uh, number two, uh, health, and number three was prosperity. Relationships, health and prosperity. For many of us, suffering happens when we face trials in one or more of those areas of life. Relationships. <clears throat> when our relationships break down or when uh, relationships are ended uh, by death and we grieve the loss of someone we love. Um, health, um, sickness and disability are a reality of life for many of us. And sometimes uh, it's the struggle uh, with prosperity. It's the struggle to, to make ends meet, even in Australia, uh, with everything that we have. Uh, sometimes health issues can result in uh, a struggle financially, uh, we struggle financially when we lose our jobs. And we, uh, we've got a family to, to feed and we've got a mortgage to pay, we've got rent to come up with. These are some of the areas that uh, cause us trials. And as Christians, we also have the added experience of uh, being different to the world in which we live. And sometimes that, as you know, results in <clears throat> some flack that we might cop. Um, because of the, uh, of the Lord whom we serve and the values that we hold. 
And so over the next couple of months, as we make that gear shift from the book of Exodus, <clears throat> we're going to be uh, looking at uh, some of the practicalities <clears throat> of living with Christ Jesus as our Lord and Saviour uh, in this world in which we live, especially as we face trials of many kinds. And so <clears throat> if you've got your Bibles open at the book of James, you'll see <clears throat> in verse 1 it starts with something which is basic and that is that this is a <clears throat> letter which is written by James. Now, uh, exactly who was James, we can't be um, absolutely certain. There were three apostles whose name was, was James. There was uh, James, the son of Zebedee. There was James, the son of, of Alphaeus. And there was, of course, the uh, James, the brother of Jesus. There's a couple of other Jameses that are mentioned in the Bible as well. Uh, which particular James has written this book, we can't be uh, absolutely certain about. Uh, most people tend to think that it's James, the brother of Jesus, but we just can't be sure. What we can be sure of is that how he describes himself as being a servant of, uh, of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, if James was sending this, if James was writing this letter and putting it in the post box these days, it's likely that it would uh, get sent back to him, you know, the uh, return to sender insufficient address uh, kind of thing marked on it because he doesn't address this to any particular church but rather he addresses it to, an, as you see, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, what does that mean? Well, in Old Testament times, that would have been a a really good description of God's people uh, during and after the period, uh, the periods of, of the exiles. So you might remember that the, uh, there was a time in history when the northern kingdom of the, the ten tribes <clears throat> were invaded by the Assyrians and they were taken into exile into Assyria. Uh, and then later on, the uh, two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they were invaded by the Babylonians and they were taken in exile to Babylon. And in the whole conflict and the mess of, of all of that, there were others who, who escaped and who went and settled in places like Egypt. So, in other words, uh, this is, in, in Old Testament times, this would be saying this is a letter addressed to God's people everywhere, the 12 tribes. But uh, from a New Testament perspective, we know that um, the people who are the true descendants of Abraham are those who are not descendants by, by, um, uh, by biology, but rather by faith. It is those who have the faith of Abraham, who trusted in the promises of God, and that was credited to him as righteousness, that we are the true people of God. And so in other words, uh, this is kind of code for saying... <clears throat> this letter is addressed to God's people living in an alien land, living amongst those who do not know God and who do not share their values. It's a good description of us, isn't it? Because that is us. Uh, as Christians, we are God's new people. And like Israel, living amongst those who don't know God, we will face certain kinds of trials. We'll face the trials that are common to man 
and we will face a diversity of trials that uh, sometimes result because we just don't share the values of the people who we live amongst. Trials which will test our faith in God, trials which will test our commitment to Jesus as Lord. That's really important, isn't it? Because words can sometimes be cheap, can't they? It's easy for me to say that I trust in God. It's easy for me to say that God's ways are always right and best. That's easy to say. But what happens when I'm faced with a challenge? What happens when I'm faced, put in a situation where I'm vulnerable, where I have to make a choice, and it's a choice between, on the one hand, God's way, or on the other hand, the easier way. Well, that's what this small book of James is all about. And he starts in what some would think on the surface is a very strange way, because if you have a look at verse 2, see what he says there? He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, and sisters are included in that. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's strange, isn't it? At a time of tri trial, heaviness of heart, yes, but joy, pure joy? What does he mean by that? Why does he say something such as that? Well, I think it helps us if we uh, consider that there are two different broad responses that we can make uh, to being faced with trials that are outlined for us in this passage. And I want to firstly jump down to considering what the wrong way to respond to trials is, which is what we see in verse 13. Will you come with me to verse 13 for a few moments? Because there he says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, <clears throat> the word here, which is the word to tempt, is actually the same word in the original, which is also translated as trials, to experience a trial. It's the same word in the original, uh, but it has two different meanings. And the way that that'll be translated will be according to the context in the sentences in which it's used. Same word, but two different meanings. And when you think about it, trials and temptations are connected, aren't they? In one sense, they can be like two sides of the same coin. Because if I am confronted by some, some external difficulty, something which is not necessarily within my control, some external difficulty, a trial in my life, then the next thing that I might be confronted with is an internal difficulty. And that is a temptation. A temptation to respond to that trial in a way that's actually not the right thing to do. For example, if we think that relationships, health and prosperity add to happiness, 
then what happens if we don't have those things? What happens if we, we lose those things? The temptation to, to turn away from God, the temptation to respond in a way that doesn't please God can be very great and very real. But look again at what James says. Again in verse 13, read that again. He says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Do not be deceived. Um, <clears throat> the trial can lead us to a temptation, and the temptation becomes sin because of, the, of what's actually in our hearts. Uh, God allows the, uh, the trials to come our way. He does that. Um, but the temptation to respond by turning away from God actually tells us more about our own hearts than, than God. And that's the, that is the wrong response to trials. But there is a right response, and uh, we see that in verse 3, in the second part of verse 3, where he says that the testing of your faith develops perseverance... Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Right? So the right response to a trial is to persevere in godliness, but that kind of perseverance actually flows out of wisdom. Wisdom is necessary. Wisdom is the precondition for perseverance in a time of trial. Now, James provides us with wisdom from God. In fact, during the week, if you've got time, you might want to just read through the whole of the book of, of James. And uh, <clears throat> what you may note is, as you do so, that there is, there's real similarities in James to the kind of stuff that we read in the book of Proverbs. Um, James just oozes with um, that kind of wisdom sort of literature. But it's more than just a, a wisdom style, it's the actual wisdom that, um, uh, that, that, that comes from God and is found in God's word. You see, and we see it here, uh, to God you are like a precious stone. You ever think of yourself that way, as a precious stone? You know, a raw diamond, when it's just dug up, um, doesn't look particularly beautiful. Uh, in fact, uh, to the untrained eye, it might just look like any old rock. But the process of applying pressure, the process of, of cutting and grinding and polishing is what actually uh, makes it beautiful and shows, shows the beauty that's inherent uh, within it. When God calls us as Christians and forgives us, we're just raw material, folks, uh, with all of our rough edges, with all of our 
sinfulness, our self-centeredness, our pride, our jealousy, our lusts, our insecurities, our materialism, our greed, our, our lack of trust and all of that. And God wants to deal with those things so that we can become more holy. And so God does therefore not always shelter us from circumstances where we can be stripped of uh, our pride, we can be stripped of things which, which we've put our trust in. Uh, he doesn't uh, shelter us from circumstances where we're on the edge and where, where we may be forced to actually think uh, more deeply than we ever have about what is truly valuable in life. Uh, God does not shield us from circumstances where we are shown more profoundly uh, just how fatherly his love for us as his child actually is. And you know from your own experience that sometimes it's all three of those things together, isn't it? That uh, God strips us of things which were unhelpful, that we are forced to think about what we truly value and we experience in a profound way his, his fatherly loving care for us and we learn to trust and trust in him. Now, having said that, I don't want to be, don't want to be glib about it um, because there is absolutely no denying that uh, this process is sometimes very, very, very tough and that in the fog of the spiritual battle that we may uh, express our confusion, that we might cry out to the Lord uh, and uh, express even our distress uh, in terms of what we're going through. But in the end, the wise person perseveres in godliness. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Pure joy? I don't think that means having a plastic smile you know, when you come to church when things are really going tough. Uh, it does mean that even through the tears that we experience a certain joy in knowing that God is actually at work in our lives. Think about the Christians uh, who lost loved ones in South Carolina in the church just over a week or so ago. A uh, <clears throat> group of people um, sitting in a Bible study group a stranger walks in, studies the Bible with them and then uh, you know, pulls out a .45 calibre handgun and, uh, and uh, pumps bullets into nine of them. Um, think about what their family and what their friends are going through, many of whom are Christian people. And uh, <clears throat> as we've seen in the, in the media, and there's an article about it in your bulletins there, that... Um, and they who've, uh, their response uh, has been to persevere in godliness. Uh, as they show uh, not revenge, not hatred, but rather forgiveness and grace. <clears throat> and you can, uh, you don't have to be too smart to realise that that is not an easy process for these people. Uh, family members to, to go through, but that in going through that process, 
that they're actually, um, their faith has been tested. It's being shown to not be wanting, but it's being deepened and strengthened as they face the accused murderer uh, of their mothers, of their children, of their spouses, and say, uh, I forgive you, uh, and please turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ and find forgiveness from God. That's a, uh, a test which is evidencing, which is, uh, which uh, in wisdom is meaning that people are persevering and they're actually growing in maturity as a result. Now, um, throughout James, we're going to see a whole range of trials which uh, uh, have the potential to test our faith. But the one which um, James raises first is the issue of prosperity and or lack thereof. And uh, in verse uh, 9 and following, he speaks about the, the brother facing humble circumstances. It's a nice way of putting it, isn't it? Humble circumstances. You know, one of the things I love about the Psalms, and I know that you, many of you do as well, is that when you read the Psalms, there's a lot of honesty there, isn't there? Uh, you read the psalmists uh, and they express how they, um, in a time of difficulty, that they uh, poured out their feelings to God, how they wrestled with God and uh, sometimes complained to God and you think, yep, that resonates with me. That's really, really helpful to know. Psalm 73 is a bit similar in that regard. Uh, you don't have to turn this up, but uh, let me summarise it for you. In Psalm 73, the psalmist says, I was suffering. I was doing it tough, really tough, and, and I was being godly. I was working hard at being godly in that circumstance. But I look around me and I see there's all these arrogant and ungodly people and guess what they're doing just fine in life <laughs> their bodies are strong and healthy um, everything's, are going, everything's going swimmingly for them and um, they're all cashed up and they're doing okay and for him that was a time of, of testing and that time that testing of that outward circumstance uh, developed into an inner um, problem and that was temptation. Uh, the temptation to say, well, what the heck? I might as well just raise the white flag on godliness and join up with them because it doesn't seem to have done me much good being godly. Might as well become like the rest of the world. He says, I envied them. I envied them I thought, what is the point of persevering in godliness when I can just be like them. Now, we're tempted like that sometimes, aren't we? Um, when we're honest about it. The temptation to think that um, happiness comes through prosperity is great. I remember even when I was down in Sydney, I was listening to a Christian radio station one time and there was an ad for a Christian superannuation company and uh, this was their, their message. It said this, they said, and I quote, for true financial security, invest in us. 
unquote. Now, I know what they were saying. They're saying, look, we're not some fly-by-night operation, but, you know, it's not... We're, we're you know, we, this is a proper... But it's strange advice coming from Christians, isn't it? For true security, invest in us. Uh, money is necessary and poverty isn't much fun. But money is not where true security is found. Our society says that it is. Uh, you know, I thought I'd heard it all when a, a few months ago I heard someone on the TV say that unless you've got $1 million in your superannuation account, you're going to be in trouble. I thought, well, I'm in trouble. <laughs> then the other week I heard someone said, look, you know, you don't need that $5 million in your super account. I thought, $5 million? <laughs> you know, from their perspective, I'm, I'm in serious trouble. Our society says that that's where true security is found, but, you know, we can end up believing that lie and even envying those who, um, who are wealthy, who've got the big super accounts, who've got the properties, who've got the uh, investment portfolio and so on. We can envy people because of their wealth. The psalmist did until he... He entered into God's sanctuary and he was reminded of eternal heavenly realities and he changed his mind entirely. Now that is what James does for us here uh, in verse 9. Have a look at it and you'll see some of the wisdom literature, um, the Proverbs in this as well. Verse 9, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. You see the reversal there? Because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. See, true happiness is not found in a healthy bank balance uh, because ultimately uh, that will disappear. Rich man, poor man, we all share the same common destiny, don't we? It's a hole in the ground in a, in a box or a very small box inserted into a wall. Um, the rich man might have a nicer box but it's the same common destiny. In the end, what matters is not a person's status in the world. What matters most is a person's status in Christ. The poor man, if he trusts in Jesus, is wealthy beyond measure. His sins are forgiven. Eternal life is his. And so therefore, James says he ought to take pride in his high position. In his high position... And the rich, and notice here that when he talks about the, the brother in humble circumstances, he's talking about a brother. When he's talking about the rich man, he's not actually uh, adding the brother thing to it. So it's the rich man is not necessarily a Christian, not necessarily a brother that he's talking about here. But James reverses their positions, and in so doing, he turns the value system of our world upside down. Uh, please note... He's not saying that poor people go to heaven, rich people go to hell. Of course not. The poor man here, as I say, is a brother. 
uh, and rich person and poor person alike need Jesus Christ, need to trust in Jesus for salvation. But in our times of trial, when we are tempted, we need to ask God for wisdom. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now, I I think what this doesn't mean, because sometimes people get hung up here on, well, you know, I've asked for wisdom, but have I asked without any skerrick of doubt at all? Uh, do I need to work myself up into a situation where, you know, I believe, I believe, I believe, and I'm not doubting? Uh, I don't think that's what it's talking about here. I think it's saying uh, possibly two things, and that is that uh, when you ask, uh, God for wisdom, then uh, you must be someone who actually uh, believes that that is the wisdom that needs to be followed and actually put into practice. Uh, secondly, uh, you've got to watch your motivations because later on <coughs> in James, it uh, talks about the... Um, it also uses the, uh, the term the, the double-minded man and the double-minded man is the man who asks God God to give him things but he does so for his own pleasures he does so for wrong motivations so uh, when we ask God for wisdom uh, we should act on the wisdom that he gives us and that we shouldn't be asking uh, simply out of false and wrong and sinful motivations ask for wisdom because you want to actually honour God in the circumstances in which you find yourself God's wisdom is found in God's word. And God's wisdom tells us that God does not look at the outward appearance of a man. What, what does God look at? God looks at a man's heart, doesn't he? He looks at the heart. Um, when God chose David, uh, he chose the, uh, the, the, the least likely. He, he chose the, the youngest of the sons of Jesse the one that Jesse didn't even bother presenting uh, to, uh, to Samuel. Uh, and, uh, and yet God chose uh, David because he doesn't look at outward appearance, he looks at the heart. And God, we learn, we're reminded of in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, God chooses the weak and the lowly to shame the strong and the mighty. Uh, Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, look at you mob, you know. There's not many of you who were, you know, wealthy and powerful and glamorous and, you know, highly intelligent when God called you, you know, uh, because God actually chooses all kinds of people. And when he chooses weak and lowly and poor people, he does so because uh, through us, he does great things. And when he does those great things, it's clear that it's God and his power and his strength and it's got nothing to do with us. 
God chose that uh, his way was for a man to be uh, arrested, um, put on trial, beaten up, stripped, hung out in shame on a cross, uh, to die as a criminal, and in so doing, to actually be achieving the greatest victory ever won. That's how God works. And so, in a time of financial trial, wisdom tells us, don't envy a person just because you know, they're great in the eyes of the world. Don't envy a person because they've got wealth. I mean, I was watching TV a few weeks ago, and I don't know if you might have seen this on TV, but there was a cameraman and a reporter that, uh, <clears throat> you know, were, um, just happened to be hanging around, or not just happened to be hanging They were there on the spot when two wealthy and very well-known businessmen uh, in a restaurant got into a fight. Did you see that? And then the fight kind of spilled over onto the, onto the footpath, and uh, then as the uh, cameras followed and the reporter was there, the, the foul and vile uh, words that spewed from the drunken mouth of one of these rich men, it just reminded me of, uh, of the Proverbs. Proverbs 28 verse 6 says, Better a man whose walk, uh, better a poor man, better a poor man whose walk is blameless than a rich man whose ways are perverse. Now, it's not having a go at rich people. But what it is saying is that there is something which is far more valuable than silver and gold, and that's character. Treasured character. Uh, a man's reputation, a woman's reputation, is worth more than anything. But here, uh, like the psalmist walking into the tabernacle, James reminds us uh, not just of that present reality but of the eternal reality and that is that the rich man who does not humbly trust in Jesus is assured of a very, very bleak future. And the believer in humble circumstances should embrace that wisdom. Now all of this points to one thing, um, verse 17. In verse 17, we're told that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. That is, we may be tempted to think that God has not given us um, that which he should give us. But we're reminded here that, uh, that every good and perfect gift comes from God. That he is generous to us as our heavenly father. And what has he given us more than anything else? Well, he's chosen to give us, what does it say? Birth. Birth through the word of truth. So that if we are forgiven people, whether rich or whether poor, uh, if we're forgiven, we've been reborn. We have a new life. And our goal in life 
will be to live not for ourselves or our world, but to live in order to honour the one who's done the forgiving. And note there that it's so that we might be a kind of first fruits. I guess the idea of the first fruits in the Bible is that um, when the farmer sees the, uh, the first um, uh, of his crops um, blossoming into fruit, uh, then he knows that there's a big harvest that's on its way. The harvest is working. Right? That's the first evidence of that. The other thing is that uh, he, he, he gives as an offering the first fruits to the Lord. It's, it's kind of like this is, the, this is the harvest and this is the harvest that God has, uh, has won by the sending of his own son Jesus that we might be born again uh, to live for him. Now, it may be that you're going through trials in your life even now. Um, some of us I know are. That's a reality. Um, relationship problems, um, health problems, financial problems. And it's painful. There's no doubt about that. But notice that James doesn't say that we are to consider our trials themselves to be the pure joy. He says that we are to consider it pure joy when we face those trials. Because we know that there's a purpose. Sometimes though when you're in the middle of the tough times, uh, we're weak, uh, we're vulnerable, and it can be pretty hard to understand what God is doing. Is that right? You know that, don't you? What do you do? Well, you know the hymn, don't you? you know, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble everywhere? Uh, something like we should bring it to the Lord in prayer. That's right. Well, the hymn writer didn't make that up. He got it probably from the book of James. Because we're told here in James that we are to, to pray and we are to ask God to give us wisdom and trust that he will actually give it to us. Trust that what he tells us through his word is the wisdom that we need. I don't necessarily know uh, the trials that everyone here is facing at this present time. The uh, difficult decisions that you need to make or the temptations that you're experiencing that have emerged from those trials. Uh, James says that there are trials of many kinds. Relationships, health, money, there's just a few categories, but there's more. But in the fog of the spiritual battle and under the weight of our burden, we know that what we should be doing is turning to God in prayer. And that's what I'd like to, us to do now, actually. Um, we're going to do this a bit differently to normal um, because as I lead us in prayer, I'd like you to think about wh whatever the trial is that, that you're going through at the moment, uh, that you're facing, and make this prayer personal to yourself. Insert your name into the prayer. Insert uh, your trial 
into the prayer. Now, it may be that uh, you're not going through anything particularly at the moment. Um, and if that's the case, then make it your prayer for others because you know others are doing it tough. Make it your prayer for your future because it doesn't matter who you are, I can assure you that you will face trials in the future. And in the future, this should be the kind of prayer that you'd be praying. So will you join with me now in prayer and make this very personal for yourself? Let us pray. Lord, you know the trial that I'm facing at this time and the temptation which is before me. Give me wisdom, I pray, that I will know that in my difficulties that you are working for my good, even though I cannot see what that good might be. Give me the wisdom that I will not turn against you or respond in a way that brings dishonour to you, but rather through the challenge, even through my tears, may I know with conviction that your ways are always right and strengthen me by your spirit that I might live obediently to your will and for your glory. Relieve me of my burden, if it be your will, I pray. And in wisdom, grant that I may know that my problems are not in vain. For in all of this, that you are teaching me more, you are teaching me much more of what it means to be your child and to depend and trust in you as my loving Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.